Please open your Bible up to Ephesians chapter 5. This morning we'll be reading uh, verses 3 through 14. Ephesians 5, 3 through 14. As we walk through the book of Ephesians, we've seen that the book uh, focuses in the first half and it, on our identity in Christ, the new identity that we have in Christ. We've heard some of that this morning in our assurance of pardon, that though we were dead, we are now raised to life. And then in the second half of the book, it's talking about how do we live out that new identity that we have in Christ. We continue with that theme of living out our identity in Christ this morning. I begin reading at Ephesians 5, verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were, dark, in dark, you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. A house is being built on the lot behind our house, and so for the past several months, uh, we've had constant background noise from that job site. It varies from day to day, week to week. Uh, First, it was diggers digging out the foundation. Uh, Particularly fun was when the uh, roller was flattening out the foundation and shaking our house several days in a row, Uh, dump trucks coming and going, siding, roofing, framing, on down the list. Uh, At first, the new sound is disruptive, but then you adapt to it and sort of tune it out and forget it's there. Uh, And yet, since the windows have gotten put in, even at night, we hear the flashing tape and Tyvek flapping in the wind. It's always there in the background, sort of noise uh, from this construction site. And when we come to Paul's topic about sexual immorality this morning, it's sort of the same thing. It's constantly in the background of our modern Day, from off color jokes that your coworkers might tell to bikini calendars in the break room to the magazine racks at the grocery store promising tips to make your love life perfect to pressure to look at things that you shouldn't on a school friend's phone. Uh, and then that's not even mentioning movies, TV, music, television on down the list. It's the sort of background noise of our age that's everywhere. 
Sometimes this uh, sexual temptation in the background noise of modern life, it's loud and overt like a tractor. Other times it's more subtle, like the Tyvek flapping in the wind. But the consistent message is that your true fulfillment can be found here. Run after this. Well, this isn't just a modern problem. If anything, we actually have things easier than in Paul's day. In the first century, prostitution was ubiquitous. It was everywhere. Bathhouses and public places were filled with explicit art. Even the lamps in many homes were commonly decorated with erotic scenes. So as much as we're bombarded with sort of sexual imagery, Paul knew what that was like. Yet speaking into this world where slaves oftentimes had no rights, even over how their own bodies were used, when free men were expected to use prostitutes and those of lower status for their own satisfaction, Paul holds out the hope of sanity. He gives us four principles in this passage. Four principles for sanity in this area. Our bodies are gifts from God. Don't make God's gifts idols or jokes. Don't be deceived. Instead, walk as children of light. We begin with Paul's first principle. Our bodies are gifts from God. Our bodies are gifts from God. I don't know why I keep using the word gift in, uh, in uh, main points, because I seem to have trouble saying gifts in the plural uh, out loud, but you, you see what I'm saying, gifts from God. Now, Paul uh, doesn't teach this principle anywhere explicitly in our passage, but it's implicit in the entire passage. It's the presupposition of everything he says. Notice the little conjunction that this passage starts with, but, but, our passage this morning begins with a contrast with what has gone before. What was that? Well, if you were with us last week, uh, hopefully you'll recall that Paul ended his passage on putting off old ways of living and putting on new ways of living with this summary statement. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, why would Paul immediately contrast that with sexual immorality? Well, he recognizes that there's a continuity between our desires, our longing for intimacy, and Christ's love for us. There's a continuity, a connection. Yet, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, these are but pale imitations of Christ's true self-giving love for us. To even talk about immorality and impurity, however, suggests that there is such a thing as morality and purity. To say this is the wrong way to do something means that there's a right way. And so to understand Paul's negative commands, we need to have a positive understanding in place first. So where do we begin with the Bible's positive teaching on sex? What is it actually for? If we're going to take the Bible seriously, the right place to start with this question is in Genesis 1 and 2. If we go back there, we read, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. 
Of course, a lot could be said about this famous passage, and much could be said about Genesis 1 and 2. But for the, the, the argument at hand, a few key points. First, our bodies are gifts from God. And our sexual nature is part of God's good creation. Although we get bent out of shape by our own disordered desires, these desires are fundamentally a good part of our being, given by God. Furthermore, as we read on in Genesis 2, we see that one purpose of physical union is solidifying the covenant one flesh relationship between a man and his wife. And we also see in Genesis 1 that our very nature as sexual beings is part of our, how we reflect or image God. In Genesis 1, God creates the world, he makes this world, and then he fills it with all sorts of creatures. And then he makes humans, male and female, in his image, and he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. We reflect God's own image as someone who fills the earth, as a, as a God who fills the earth with creatures, by also filling the earth with creatures. Even in English, we see this connection between procreation and creation. It mirrors God's own activity. Human longing and desire is what drives us. It makes us tick. The old joke goes, men build skyscrapers and pyramids and things like that just to get women to pay attention to them. It really is a driving force in society. And so even our physical desires, our longing for intimacy, tell us something about the God whose image we're made in. It tells us something about his love and desire for us, his creatures. And so as creatures made in God's image, we're called to mirror God, to reflect his character in every area of our life, including our sexuality. And so for Christians in the Christian life, this happens in two basic modes, chastity and married fidelity. Chastity and married fidelity. First, chastity. Now, I'm afraid the church has oftentimes failed here. Christians can at times talk as if singleness is some sort of aberration or abnormality. But the fact is that singleness is the default setting for all humans, Christians included. And marriage is only a season that some people live through. I'll complicate that in just a moment. But we are all born single, and we all live out our early lives as single people. Teens in this room, you're all single. Many adults are single. And even for those who are married, uh, barring some freak accident, one or the other of you will outlive your spouse and once again be single. And as we learned in this week's catechism question that the kids we all worked on in Sunday school this morning, do you remember? What kind of redeemer do we need? One who is truly human. And so we say Jesus lives a truly human life in all of its fullness and complexity. And yet, Jesus, our Lord, truly human, was single for his entire earthly life. And so for those who are single, and really for all of us, of course, Jesus is both our model and our hope. Jesus shows us that you can live a meaningful, chaste life. And this is totally countercultural. 
Uh, everything in society is giving pressure, saying if you're not, um, if you're, if you're not having physical intimacy, you're really not living. Uh, and yet Jesus says, no, look at this full life, this fully human life that's lived. In his teaching on husbands and wives that we'll get to in a couple of weeks, Paul says that marriage is a mystery. That ultimately marriage refers to or points to Christ and the church, to this heavenly marriage between Christ the bridegroom and to his church the bride. And so Jesus on earth lived a single life looking forward in hope to this heavenly marriage. And all of us, single or married, must live the same way, looking forward to this ultimate hope. All of our desires here for any intimacy we have on earth is ultimately only a sign pointing beyond itself to this heavenly reality. And so chastity is not asking us to deny that we are sexual beings, but rather living with this hope of our future marriage, our heavenly marriage. It's living with emotional integrity. It's about ordering our desires rightly, given our season in life. And so, as single people, we are called to image God. To image God in his openness by cultivating networks of friends. In singleness, we are called to mirror Christ's self-sacrificial love by sacrificing our physical desires for the sake of our Christian identity and hope. The second mode of sexuality in the Christian life is fidelity in marriage. In physical union, we make promises with our bodies. And so C.S. Lewis writes, The monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union from all the other kinds of union which were intended to go along with it and make up the total union. Again, Paul teaches that this is a mystery. Marriage is a mystery. The earthly marriage is meant to point beyond itself to the heavenly marriage between Christ and his church. And so marriage must reflect Christ's faithfulness to his church. Uh, the, The physical union and commitment that's made must be backed up with a verbal commitment, a covenant agreement, the covenant of marriage. And so in the Christian frame of reference, Our question that we ask about how we live out a married life is totally reframed. The question is not, am I being fulfilled in this marriage? And if not, I'm going to go somewhere else. But rather, how do I live out covenant faithfulness in this marriage? How do I live out covenant faithfulness in this marriage? This point was driven home to me. Uh, Some of you know it. When I was at Regent College, one of my professors was uh, the Old Testament uh, professor, Bruce Waltke. Um, Well, Bruce Walkie's wife, uh, at the end of her life, had fairly severe dementia, and for about 10 years he had to care for her very intensively during that season and took her with, took her with him uh, to meetings and even to classes uh, to help care for her. It was interesting, at the same time that he was doing that, uh, another Old Testament scholar about the same age as Bruce Walkie, very prominent, uh, well-known Old Testament scholar, uh, abandoned his wife of 30 years to marry his secretary because he was no longer fulfilled in his marriage. And seeing those two pictures set before me of, on the one hand, covenant faithfulness, what that looks like living it out at the end of your life. Um, and looking around, I know some of you in this room have lived that out uh, with your spouse at the end of their life, even in the last couple of years. And then on the other hand, this abandonment of covenant vows uh, because someone felt unfulfilled. 
So the first principle is that God, our bodies are gifts from God. We've got to get the positive in place, and then we can move more quickly through the negative. The second principle Paul gives us in this passage, and this is explicit, is don't make God's gift into an idol or a joke. Don't make God's gift into an idol or a joke. And so he says, put away sexual immorality and impurity. And so sexual morality must move beyond mere consent. Uh, This is kind of the frame of reference in our society today, is consent is the um, driving principle for all sexual morality. Now, consent itself is, in fact, a Christian invention, and so certainly Christians should advocate for that. Um, In the early centuries, uh, Paul's day, moving forward to the fourth century, uh, uh, the Christian witness in ancient Rome was against all sorts of forced prostitution of slaves, for example. They were saying, no, even slaves have moral agency uh, and so, so must consent to what's happening. Sorry, I, I will do Q&A at, after the end of service back in here. So I, I'm trying to, you know, we have kids of all ages, adults of all ages. I know there's probably questions. So I, I will be back in here for Q&A. But, but for now, I'll try and put, put things um, somewhat vaguely. Hopefully you, you get what I'm saying. And yet when Paul says put away sexual immorality, uh, his term pornea, from which we get our word pornography, is in fact a very broad term that refers to any sort of physical intimacy or sexual intimacy outside of the exclusive marriage relationship. And as in English, impurity is the opposite of purity. And then the third thing he tells us to put away is covetousness or greed. And this word can refer to greed of all kinds, greed for money, for power, for food, for whatever. Uh, But in context, it certainly means being greedy for another person's body. And so Paul's broad teaching calls us to morality, to living rightly in every area. He's saying, put away immorality in every area of your life, physical, mental, visual, virtual, whatever area you're facing temptations, put it away, live rightly. And so again, Paul calls us to reframe the whole question that our sexuality is not an expression of our personality, that we have so many different inclinations and that's part of our personality, but rather Paul calls us to develop character. He says, live in a way that is proper for Christians. Develop your Christian character. And so when we're facing temptations in all these various areas or we're facing decisions, physical, visual, virtual, mental, whatever they are, we can ask ourselves some diagnostic questions. We can ask ourselves, is this thing reflecting God's own love in fidelity? Does this thing lead to flourishing for myself and others involved? God said, be fruitful and multiply. Does this lead to flourishing? And we must ask ourselves, is this degrading and dehumanizing? Does it mar the image of God in myself or another? Now, I recognize that even saying that there's some form of sexual morality that goes beyond mere consent uh, is perhaps objectionable to some even in this room. It certainly is not the mainstream of belief in this day. Here I'm, G.K. Chesterton in his book, Orthodoxy, uses a quite helpful illustration He talks about fairy tales, and in fairy tales, he points out uh, there's always something that's very uh, unbelievably strange, that's uh, almost too good to be true, and yet it comes with conditions. 
So Cinderella, for example, she has a pumpkin turned into a carriage that's going to take her to the ball. She wears glass slippers and a magical dress, right? It's too good to be true. And yet there's a rule. You have to be home by midnight. Now, Cinderella never stops to argue, why do I have to be home by midnight? It's just, well, it's all, it's magic. None of it, it's so unbelievable. Well, yeah, of course, there's some weird rules that go with it that I don't necessarily understand. And Chesterton says, in the same way, physical intimacy is so unbelievable, it's almost like magic, that, that God might give us rules that go with it should be expected. It's like a fairy tale. It's some, there's just, that's the way it is. It's like magic that comes with some sort of rules that go with it. And I think that that's the right way to think about this. God's gift is, is so great and so mysterious that we shouldn't fully expect to understand why all of the detailed rules that go with it go with it. Paul then moves on to identify wrong ways of thinking about God's good gift that lead us to wrong use. Idolatry and frivolity. We can either make sex into everything as if it's the meaning of life. It's not. Or we can make it nothing, as if it's merely a bodily function with no intrinsic meaning. Again, it's an unavoidably meaningful act. Both attitudes are rampant in our day, making too much and too little of this good gift of God. First, idolatry. It's turning God's good gift into a God. In verse 5, note Paul defines covetousness or greed for another person's body as idolatry. Now, turning this into an idol is a, is a twofold problem. When we idolize another person, we displace God from his rightful place in our lives. We are meant to worship God, not another human being, no matter how beautiful or handsome they are. When we worship God, everything else is relativized. Remember Jesus' parable? He says, God's kingdom is like a treasure buried in a field that you go and sell everything you have so that you can buy that field. It's so great that it's worth giving up everything else. Everything else can be given up for the sake of God. And then God calls us to love our neighbors as ourselves and to practice truth and love and all the rest. And so our ethics actually are rightly ordered when we worship God. But when we worship something besides God, when we set up one of God's good gifts as an idol, be it money or sex or power or whatever, When we start giving up everything else for the sake of that idol, it warps all of our ethics. It twists everything out of shape. The second problem with idolizing someone is it treats another person as merely an object, a body to be desired rather than as a person created in God's image. And I'm going to skip over some material here, but if you're interested in following up on this, You can read 2 Samuel 13, the story of Amnon and Tamar, and track how Amnon first idolizes Tamar uh, and then actually ends up hating her. And and it's a good illustration of this point. But the second problem Paul addresses here, on the one hand, is turning this God's gift into an idol. The other is not idolatry, but frivolity, turning God's good gift into a joke. It's an equally wrong attitude, an equally wrong way of thinking about God's gift. We act as if our physical desires are nothing more than physical urges, and like any other physical process, it becomes the subject of obscenity, foolish talk, and coarse joking. And Paul says this is not right for the Christian. Think about uh, 
you get a gift at Christmas. Kids, you can think about this. You get a gift at Christmas from your grandparents. Well, both of these would be wrong things to do, to turn it into an idol or to turn it into a joke. If you were so excited about the gift that you ignored your grandparents who gave it to you and you forgot to say thank you and you just left to go play with it, that would be wrong. But also, if you just made a joke out of it and sort of kicked it around and and made fun of the present they gave you, that also would be wrong. Well, kids, I'm sure you hopefully all know the right response to getting a good gift, right? It's thankfulness. We're thankful. And that's what Paul proposes here as a countermeasure. He says, we avoid making God's gift more than it is or less than it is by being thankful. So let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, But instead, let there be thanksgiving. When we are thankful, we rightly order things. We recognize that God's gifts are simply that. They are good gifts, but from God. And so God himself must be thanked for the gifts. In thankfulness, our attitude neither is idolatry nor frivolity. And so a a, a fourth diagnostic question we can ask ourselves Uh, about any behavior that we're wondering, is this right or wrong for a Christian? We can ask ourselves, can I thank God for this? Can I thank God for this? And if not, there's a real, uh, it's probably immorality. Flee from it. Paul proceeds then. He, He warns us in a third principle. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. See there in verse six, let no one deceive you with empty words. Uh, this area of of sexual morality is a non-negotiable part of orthodoxy, as Tim Keller puts it. At Acts 15, uh, there's this apostolic council where all the apostles get together and they are debating uh, how Gentiles can act as Christians. Do they have to take on the whole Jewish law? And there's a lot more going on there than we can get into this morning. But what they do is they write a letter to all the churches that's binding for all Christians in all circumstances. And as part of that letter, one of the four requirements is that all Christians abstain from sexual immorality. Okay, this is not debatable secondary areas where you can kind of decide to do whatever you want. This is primary and central to Christian orthodoxy. And so Paul gives us two serious warnings. In verse 5, he says, be sure of this, everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. It's the same trio of terms from verse 3 that he told us to put off, but now they're used as titles. He's saying if instead of of putting these off and and not participating in these, you instead identify with these different behaviors, then you have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. The two paths simply diverge. The path of sexual immorality and pleasing ourselves leads one way, And the path that leads to the kingdom of God goes another way. This is a serious warning. Paul is saying that what we do with our bodies ultimately has eternal implications. His second warning comes in verse 6. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes on sons of disobedience. Sons of disobedience is a Hebraism, uh, meaning those who are characteristically disobedient. It's almost like, uh, you know, that's their family name, is disobedient. And his, his, his warning here echoes Romans 1. And when he's talking about the wrath of God, I don't think Paul is referring to a final judgment, but rather that the wrath of God, in a sense, is built into creation. There's a grain to creation. 
uh, into reality. And in the long run, life works out when we work with the grain of reality instead of against it. I was doing some home improvement yesterday, and I had my electric drill out uh, and was unscrewing a door frame, but then I had to take the pin out of the, the closing mechanism, and I thought, I don't want to go all the way into the garage and sort out a hammer. Can't I just use the battery pack on my drill to knock this out? Well, you can, and I did, but you know that if you use a tool wrongly, it's not going to break the first time or the second time, but eventually your nice electric drill is going to get ruined by using it for a hammer too often. And it's the same way in our lives, that if we too often go against the grain of creation, things don't work out the, well, the way they should. Well, then in conclusion, Paul turns to this fourth principle. Walk as children of light. Walk as children of light. He's saying there's two ways to be in the world. You can be a son of disobedience, and that fundamentally characterizes you, or you can be a child of light. It's an elusive image. It's another Hebraism. It's, it's, it means you're fundamentally characterized by being in the light. But this isn't our own light that defines us. Paul says we are light in the Lord. As we are in Christ Jesus, in his righteousness, we are light. Light and darkness don't mix like colors. You can't blend them together. There's a fundamental distinction. It's either light or darkness. And so there's a fundamental contrast between our, our, how we orient ourselves. Are we going to use our bodies as God's good gift and thankfulness to him or to serve ourselves? Notice that Paul's term here is plural. He doesn't say walk as a child of the light, but he says walk as children of light. This isn't a walk that we can walk individually, but only together in a community as the church. This way of living is plausible together. When we see ourselves surrounded by others who are living in chastity and fidelity, we see the, the plausibility of this way of living. And if the church is going to continue to call teens, singles, those with same-sex attractions, widows, widowers, uh, single people in general to live chastely, as the church should continue to do, the church then must also be a place where people in all of these situations find real meaningful, fulfilling relationships in community. And so we must be a loving family. And Paul says that when we walk as children in the light, we bear fruit. We should be cultivating what Paul here calls the fruit of light, all that is good and right and true. Remember in Ephesians 2.10 that I read as the assurance of pardon this morning, Christians are created in Christ Jesus for good works. Here Paul recalls us to that purpose. He says we're to develop what's right or righteous, to reflect God's own righteous and holy character in our lives. And, and another fruit of, of walking in light is truth. And this echoes back to Paul's basic instruction we looked at a few weeks ago of living out and speaking the truth in love. And so Paul says in, in, in verse uh, uh, 10, when we walk in this way, we try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. We weigh our actions and thoughts and attitudes by this standard. Am I pleasing the Lord with what I'm doing here? Paul continues with this image of light, and he says, uh, almost taking Jesus' term, he's saying, let your light shine before men. That as we live and walk as children of the light, it shines in the darkness. Paul says it, un it exposes unfruitful works of darkness. And so by living sexually moral lives, we bring light to the darkness of the world. Paul seems to be saying 
that by, uh, that's not the real fire alarm, that's just Jack there, so don't, don't, don't worry. <laughs> but, uh, Paul seems to be saying that by living rightly, it shows hope for a different way of living, and that this brings with it conviction. Living rightly in the world, is, even if you're not being explicit about it, it brings conviction on others. And so living as a minority group within a culture that shares different morals than ours will bring with it mockery. It'll bring with it shame, especially if people are convicted by a clear and compassionate articulation of the morality that we seek to live out and as they see it lived out in community. But Paul says it's not all bad news. At one time, we were darkness, but now are light. And likewise, it says by exposing the darkness to the light, some of those living in the darkness will also become light. So living this way may bring with it mocking and even shame, and yet it will also bring light to others and life to others. I think Paul may also be saying that things that are tempting in darkness and secrecy lose their allure in the cold light of day. And then Paul ends with Christ's light. He quotes this little hymn, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. It's not a quote from the Old Testament. Most likely, this is a line from an early Christian hymn, perhaps even a hymn used at baptisms that people would sing, that they're arising, they're waking up to true life, they're arising from the dead. And yet, in the context of his letter, this, this language of resurrection, arise from the dead, it, it calls us back to Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 that we've already read this morning, that we were dead in sin, and yet in Christ, God has made us alive. And yet it's also awakening as Christ's light shines on us. And so if you feel today like you're in darkness, you feel overwhelmed perhaps even by darkness round about you, by habits that you're caught up in, by temptations that threaten you, perhaps you feel asleep or even spiritually dead by what you're caught up in. Hear Jesus' words as a call to life. Let his light shine upon you. I'm reminded of the story in Mark 5 where Jesus comes, uh, Jairus comes to bring Jesus to heal his daughter who has died. And you remember Jesus goes up into the room and he takes her by the hand and he says, get up, sweetheart. It's time to get up. And that's the image that Paul ends with here. That if you feel dead in sin or immorality, Christ's light will shine upon you. Hear his voice calling you today. It's time to get up. Let's pray. Lord, texts like this uh, are a bit awkward to preach on, perhaps a bit awkward to listen to sermons on, and yet they're so relevant and needed. This is an area where our belief is daily challenged, and so we need to be re-challenged by your word. There are some, Lord, who uh, perhaps feel overwhelmed by the insanity of, of the uh, temptations that are on offer, and they are ready for true life. And even hearing this offer of awaking to true life, of your light shining on them, they hear that this morning as hope. They're hearing this promise of true intimacy in a heavenly marriage as hope. I ask that by your spirit you would draw those uh, people in, in this place to yourself. Others, Lord, uh, identify with Christ. They identify as Christians, and yet they are still beset by various temptations. 
uh, beset by various struggles and habits, and I ask the Lord for freedom for them this day, that they would walk in the light as they are children of the light, that darkness would be put away, that immorality and impurity would be put away, that in thankfulness they might receive your gift as a good gift, not as an idol or as a joke. Still others of us, Lord, uh, have perhaps been too timid in our witness in this area. We're nervous perhaps even to teach our children uh, orthodoxy in this area, and we need to be able to clearly articulate the hope that is found in the gospel. So help us, Lord, to with boldness speak the hope and grace that we find there. Amen.